Welcome to Gateway Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Gateway Church Doncaster in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information about Gateway Church, please visit our website, gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk. Thank you for listening. We come to the third of three warnings that Paul had given that young church in response to false teaching that was being spread around amongst them. You may remember that firstly he'd warned them not to allow anyone to take them captive. Not to let anyone kidnap them and carry them back into the slavery of the law. Because in Christ we are free. We're free to be everything that God created us to be. And that is part of the wonder of the gospel. That even in the middle of our mistakes, the past can't hold us back. It says in John chapter 8, If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And then he went on, and he warned them not to let anyone pass judgment on them. Not to come under condemnation, because condemnation isn't of God. The Holy Spirit brings conviction to us, but never condemnation. In Romans 8, it says, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And now on the back of those two warnings, Paul goes on to give his third. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. From the way Paul's been writing, it seems that he is addressing the areas one by one on which the church was being attacked. They've obviously been encouraged to go back into the tradition and regulation of their former life. They've been brought under condemnation. And now it seems that they have been told that they are disqualified. They don't qualify. Which begs the question, for what? If you ask Tim what it takes for his football team to qualify for the cup, I'm sure he could give us all the details. But at a guess, you have to pay the entry fee. You have to fill in the forms. You have to get those back to the secretary before the deadline. If you want to progress, you've actually got to turn up and play some matches. Now there might be some matches, some qualifiers, but you have to win before you can even enter the main competition. And to stand any hope at all of winning, you have to beat a few of your opponents. Something that Gateway SC have been doing quite well lately, I would hasten to add. 
Did you say 10 nil the last game? Yeah. And that is all just to qualify to get into the final. But that's good news. The good news of the gospel is that we qualify. Because Christ has paid all the fees. He has satisfied all the formalities. And he has won all the victories that are needed. In fact, we can live in the certainty that he has even won the final. He has the cup in his hands and he is waiting to share the celebration with us. We qualify. We qualify for the gospel because everybody does. As Christ hung and as he suffered on the cross, he paid the price of our sin and everybody else's. And as he died, as he rose again, he brought our resurrection. The victory is ours in Christ Jesus. We can never be disqualified. We can never be disinherited. Paul emphasised that to the church in Rome because he said to them, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so certain of this victory, Paul carries on to list the areas in which they've been attacked. And you'll notice he refers to four in particular, to asceticism, to the worship of angels, to relying on visions, and in particular he talks about going on in detail about them, and about being puffed up with reason. Now these are unusual words for Paul. They're not his usual vocabulary. And so what it seems is, he's picking up on the words and the phrases that these false teachers have been using, and then using their own jargon to explain the dangers. And then he notes, using another analogy of the body, that their vulnerability to these accusations is due to them not holding fast to the head. I mean, can you imagine for a moment a body that has become detached from its head? But the first, asceticism. It isn't a word we use in church much these days. But what it means is the doctrine that a person can attain some high spiritual and moral state by practicing self-denial. The Greek word that is used literally translates as humility. But in the context that Paul uses it, it seems like he's talking about fasting. And probably, if you read on, he's referring in particular to activities he, he mentions later in verse 21, when he says, Why do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used. 
in essence, fasting and regulations that have come from the wisdom of men. Now I want to be clear here. I'm not speaking out about fasting. And certainly not against it. I mean, that would be particularly hypocritical, as when I prepared this to preach two weeks ago, I'd actually been away praying and fasting for a day with other leaders of churches within New Frontiers. The point he's making here is it isn't fasting that qualifies us in God's eyes, nor is the lack of fasting something that disqualifies us. When we fast with the right heart attitude, then what we do is we show God that we're serious about spending time with him. So much so that we're willing to give things up to do it. And as a result, he sees that we mean business. Like so many things in our spiritual lives, it's less about what we do and more about why we do it. Fasting, like prayer and worship, is something that we have to want to do from a heart attitude. It's not something we have to do to qualify. It's not something that will give us some special revelation. It's our faith in Christ that gives us life, not the times we go without food. So he's saying to them, don't let anyone tell you anything else. And then Paul goes on to mention the worship of angels. It isn't totally clear what was happening. We're not sure what made them look to the angels in worship. It may have been a response to some local cult or pagan influence. It could be that they were offering prayers to angels for their continued spiritual protection. But whatever the reason for concern... We need to be clear that angels are not meant to be the subject of our worship. They're created beings. They are no more worthy of our praise than any other created being. To worship angels is yet another form of idolatry, no different to worshipping a football star or a pop idol. Now, you could be forgiven for thinking... That angel worship is a thing of the past. You might think that it only creeps into certain parts of the Christian church where we also see undue veneration of the saints. But that isn't the case. Angel worship invades our society. It's one part of the whole New Age philosophy and spirituality. And at times it also attempts to divert the church. You've only got to look on YouTube... And you can hear things that claim to be recordings of angelic voices and choirs. And the unwary can get easily wrapped up with that. But like with any manifestation in our meetings, we should expect them to point us towards God. Because he alone is worthy of our praise and worship. If they don't make us look to him with increased awe and wonder, then we should be very wary. And that might be why, later in the letter, Paul gives some instruction on spiritual worship. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, 
teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Jesus was really clear about things. He was really clear when he said, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. You know, we can walk where angels fear to tread because we have right of access into the very throne room of the Father but for one reason and one reason only. Because Christ has opened the way for us. No angel can give us that form of access. No other created being has that right. And then Paul takes his stand against those going on in detail about visions. Joel prophesied about an age when our sons and our daughters will prophesy. When old men will dream dreams and young men will see visions. Paul himself, in his letter to the church in Corinth, discusses the prophetic gift. So he can't be talking about that. I think the clue lies in the words going on in detail. Unfortunately, the Greek there that is translated is quite an obscure verb. It's one that's rarely found in Greek literature. And that made it quite difficult to interpret until relatively recently it was found in a series of inscriptions near Ephesus. They clarified its meaning and its usage. And it seemed that it denoted an initiation into a higher stage of some secret cult. Which ended up with you getting directional visions. And so perhaps this false teacher was to some extent basing his teaching on some vision that he'd had. Instead of on the apostles' doctrine. In recognising God's grace gifts to us and in fully accepting the gift of prophecy and its importance in directing us as individuals and as a church, we have to be wary of putting too much reliance on them and particularly on their detail. We must be diligent to weigh prophecy, to weigh it against scripture and against what God has been saying to us overall. Our teaching must focus on scripture and not become derived from the details of visions, however inspiring they might be. Jeremiah warned Israel of that. He spoke, I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long shall there be lies in the heart of the prophets who prophets prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own heart who think to make my people forget my name by their dreams 
that they will tell one another, even as their fathers forgot my name for Baal. Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. And then having mentioned these things, Paul starts to get to the heart of the issue. He says that this deceiver is puffed up. Puffed up without reason by his own sensuous mind. It's interesting at this point to look at different versions and how it's translated. Because puffed up is the translation that's been used ever since the authorised version was released. Which goes back to 1611. And it's actually quite hard to improve on it. But the NIV says of this man, his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. The New American Standard says his mind is inflated without cause. The message simply says, such men are a lot of hot air. And whichever version you prefer, here is the root of the trouble with these men. It's quite simple. It's pride. It describes the self-important people who claim to be full of inside knowledge on spiritual matters. When in fact what they are is full of wind and hot air. When they're allowing their own ideas and their thoughts to dominate their teaching rather than the word of God. And so their teaching has become based on their wisdom and their knowledge and it massages their ego. Whereas it should be based on scripture and bringing glory to God. Paul knew the type. He'd already seen too many of them. He'd seen them in the church at Corinth when he'd had dealings with them. And their claim to have some special inside information was obviously unfounded. Or as Paul puts it, quite without reason. The truth is that these men's convictions weren't from a spiritual mind. But they were from a mind of the flesh. It wasn't renewed thinking from a renewed mind that Paul so often speaks about. True spiritual wisdom can often be seen to have very distinctive marks. And they include humility and a lack of boastfulness. As well as being open to reason. So now, we're starting to get a fairly clear picture of this character who's bringing the false teaching at Colossae. Paul tells us that the fundamental problem with this competing teacher is that he hasn't maintained his contact with Christ. He uses the phrase that he hasn't held fast. Now that seems to indicate to me that he was once a sincere Christian believer. 
but for some reason he has lost his way. Maybe he's been influenced by other teaching of a time. Maybe like those who are addressed in the letter to the church in Pergamum in Revelation 2, who've taken hold of the teachings of the Nicolaitans. But somehow he has remained as a member of that congregation. And the call to repentance in the passage shows that Jesus didn't think it was possible for them at the same time to both hold fast to other teaching and to hold fast to him. So what Paul's beginning to say to the believers at Colossae is if you listen to these visitors, these men who are spreading lies and deceit amongst you, you are risking cutting yourself off from Christ. Just like these men have. And what's so significant in verse 19 is that we're shown that when some of the Christians in a church lose their hold on Christ, then the whole church loses its unity. Because the whole body is no longer knit together as it should be. That leads to a general decline in church life, because the whole body should be supported and nourished with spiritual power from each joint and ligament. For the Colossians then, the result of accepting this new teaching from these visitors was not the enrichment and renewal of spiritual life that they were being promised. Instead, it was a decline and a slow drying up of true God-given resources. Did the visitors claim to have a magic formula for spiritual growth? We don't know. But Paul's emphatic language emphasises that growth comes from God rather than from men. The true law of God's growth for the congregation at Colossae could have been expressed in simple terms. All power comes from Christ, the head of the church, and is given to and is available for every part of the church, every sinew and every ligament. The local church can grow only as each member or part holds fast to the head. And in so doing, every part receives from Christ the strength and life that it can supply to the whole. That means we have some responsibilities. Firstly, as believers, we have the responsibility, each and every one of us, to hold fast to Christ. There's a direct link here between the individual believer and Jesus that is one of the wonders of the New Testament. It's a tremendous thing for any group of Christians to know that all its members have such a relationship with Christ 
that they can all say, I will hold to him. I will not let him go. And secondly, each of us, as we are linked to Christ in that vital way, gets essential nourishment to give to the wider body. That's why when we read of New Testament church life, we read of participation. Everyone has a part to play, a contribution to make. We read of member ministry. Because we need to be supporting one another in prayer, with encouragement and with practical help. We read of them living together. Being open to one another so that they can be supported and uplifted by each other. Sharing pain and joy. Happiness and sorrow. It's why we read of them looking to each other. Looking to each other for prayer, for healing, for truth, for encouragement and for discipleship. What the Christians at Colossae needed in order to see growth and fullness in their lives wasn't some visitor with some wonderful new teaching but each other. They needed to be living together in an intimate, loving, God-given community that we call the church. And you know what? That's what we need. And it's what the world needs today. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to visit gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk 